Welcome back to the Para Sports Nutrition Podcast. My name is Liz Broad and I'm an accredited sports dietitian. Today, I'm really excited to have with us Stephanie Wheeler. Stephanie is a wheelchair basketball coach at the University of Illinois and was previously the women's national team coach for USA, the women's national team who won a gold medal in Rio. She's also a two-time Paralympic gold medalist herself. So I'm really excited to have her on the program and welcome, Stephanie. Thanks, Liz. Thanks for having me. I'm uh, super excited to be with you today. So, Steph, can you tell us a little bit about your background and how you got into coaching wheelchair basketball? Oh, it's been a journey. It's been a journey. Um, mm. So like you mentioned, I'm, I coach here at the University of Illinois. Um, I'm about to go into my 14th year of coaching here, actually, which I'm <sighs> Holy finding cow. it You're too hard. young for that. I know. <laughs> I'm, <laughs> I'm finding it hard to wrap my brain around. Um, you know, we're sort of in that transition period between one season and another. And so, yeah, year 14 is is on the horizon. And sort of that transition between like, I'm not a young coach anymore, but I still don't feel like I know what I'm doing, <laughs> but I'm supposed to know what I'm doing. <laughs> so yeah, I've been coaching here for 14 years now. And I think to get to my coaching journey, I have to talk a little bit about my playing journey. I played mm-hmm. here at the University of Illinois as a student athlete. And at that time when I played, and this will date me a little bit, but we were the only women's wheelchair basketball team on the collegiate level. And so, mm-hmm. you know, really, if you wanted to play women's college basketball, you came here to Illinois. And mm-hmm. this is where wheelchair basketball started in the U.S. was at the University of Illinois. And so I think once I became a student athlete here and you know, learned what Illinois was all about and started to see that I was pretty good at basketball and pretty good at teaching. Mm-hmm. I knew that if I was ever going to be involved in coaching, I wanted to get back here in some way, shape mm-hmm. or form. And so as a student athlete here, I coached at summer camps, um, like all of our student mm-hmm. athletes do. And I was really fortunate that my coach at the time, Mike Frogley, noticed that I was pretty good at teaching. I was good at coaching. And he decided to take me around the country and around the world with him teaching camps. Yeah, I've been to Japan several times with him to coach camps and tons of places around the country. And, you know, it it speaks to having someone who can see potential in you. And I think that's one of Mm -hmm. his strengths was he saw that potential in me. And so I think he started preparing me for this job before I even know I was being prepared for this (laughs) job, um, which is pretty cool. So, you know, went along with my undergrad career. I graduated from Illinois. I moved on to the University of Alabama when their program was kind of just getting going and, you know, got some experience there working with some younger players that we had in our program as well. And I was getting close to the end of my time there and really wasn't quite sure where my life was going and what I wanted to do. And then I got a phone call from Mike Frogley one day saying, hey, our women's coaching job has opened up and you know, I would love it if you would come back home essentially and and work alongside me because he was still the head coach of our men's team at the time. So I wasn't going to turn that down (laughs) Um, because I think, you know, when I think of Illinois, I think of dream job. So here I am 14 years later. And that's sort of how I got initially involved in coaching was just somebody asked me, have you ever thought about coaching? And um, I hadn't. And I'm so grateful that I did um, or that that person, you know, Frog, thought about me in that way. So, yeah, yeah that's sort of well, how I got yeah, here to yeah. Illinois. You had a great mentor, obviously. Oh, unbelievable. Like the best. And mm. I, I'm so grateful that my first four years coaching here at Illinois, he was still here um, before he mm. moved on to a different job in Canada. So 
you know, not only got to play for him, but come back here, work 10 feet down the hall from him, learning the ins and outs of coaching. And that's really honestly what set me up to move on to be a national team coach was his guidance and his mentorship. He, again, saw that potential in me too. And was like, okay, these are the things that you need to do to get ready to be a national national team coach if this is what you want to do. So really, you know, just kind of opening up the possibilities of what could be, I think is what a great mentor does. And he was certainly that. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's amazing. And the collegiate wheelchair basketball program has expanded quite substantially since then. How many, how many teams are there now in that league? It has. So on the women's side, we have six teams, which our women's college division is pretty young. We've only been around for about, Mm -hmm. let's see, 11 years, I believe. Mm -hmm. As a college division, you know, prior to our women's college teams competed in the club level. So we're still pretty young um, as a division. So six teams, we have us, we have Wisconsin Whitewater, we have the University of Texas Arlington, University of Alabama, um, University of Arizona, and um, City University of New York. So I'm proud of our growth. I would love to see more teams out there, but we're getting there. But you also have a lot of players who come in from other countries, don't you, to to really get some consistent playing because they don't get it in their own country. Yeah, we do. We had a Canadian student athlete on our team this past season. We've had athletes from all over the world come in because like you said, it's one of the most, I think, unique training environments that you can be in for wheelchair basketball Mm. is to come to our collegiate system. And obviously, you know, the focus is on academics while you're here, but it's such a rich training environment because you get to be on court every single day under Mm. guided instruction with a coach, with teammates every single day, which is something that most wheelchair basketball players across the world don't get. I think that's why they covet coming to the U.S. sometimes and not just to our program at Illinois, but across the country at other wheelchair basketball programs. So it's a pretty unique opportunity to, to be in this kind of environment every single day. And, you know, when done the way that enhances learning, you just see mm. such exponential growth. Yeah. Yeah. I think one of our early podcasts was with Bridie Keane, who was out mm. there for a while. Yes. Yeah. Bridie was on the team here my very first year coaching. So <laughs> she saw like raw, I have no idea what I'm doing in this coaching <laughs> world, Steph. <laughs> and she's such a wonderful human and just ambassador for our sport as well. Like I'm so proud of the things that she's doing Um, in the college system there. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so can you talk to us a little bit about what the sport of wheelchair basketball is? Can you sort of explain any rule differences from able-bodied basketball and just what it looks like physically in terms of what does the training look like? Sure. So I kind of always open that question with the goal is still the same. You want to score more points than the team you're playing against, right? So Mm -hmm. that's pretty similar to, to what we see in our running basketball. So um, the biggest difference is the wheelchair. And the wheelchairs yep. are built for specifically for each athlete to their mm-hmm. specification. So depending on level of function and level of disability, you have a wheelchair built for you that maximizes your function on court, which mm-hmm. is pretty cool and unique with our sport because you're competing. I mean, if you have a I don't know, a higher level spinal cord injury, you're competing against players who might just have a below the knee amputation, right? Something that 
allows yeah. them more functional ability on court. So the chairs are designed to sort of help mitigate that in a way and enhance the function that you do have, which is, I, th- mm-hmm. I think that's the coolest part of the sport is the the design of the wheelchair, one of them anyway. Yeah. So you'll see five players on each side of the, the court playing. You'll see baskets that are the same he- height as in running basketball. You'll see a court that's the same size. Everything is the same on the basketball mm-hmm. court as far as court size and equipment goes. Like I said, the chair is the biggest thing. That's the difference. Contact is allowed. That's another uh, question that we get often is, you know, the physical. Absolutely. Mm, You're going to see, (laughs) yeah, you're going to see chairs running into each other. (laughs) Yes. You're going to see people falling on the ground and so athletically, like just popping themselves back up and getting back into the play because you're at a disadvantage if you're on the ground, you can't play. So mm-hmm. you'll absolutely see, you know, legal and illegal contact all over the place. So yeah, I mean, basketball, and I think it's an exciting sport. I think it's a sport that requires not only physicality, but it also requires a strategic mind. I think that's one of the things that mm-hmm. I was drawn to about the sport is that it really is a thinker's game. I think anyway, yeah. there's physicality involved. Absolutely. But you also have to know the sport. So combining those two things is just, I think that's the the coolest puzzle to be able to put together. So mm-hmm. yeah, you want to be as, as physical and as fast and as powerful as you can, while also understanding how to implement the fundamentals and, and, and strategies of the game. So if you've seen standing basketball and running basketball, you'll see a lot of similarities in our game as well, mm-hmm. minus the chair. The chair is part of your body in our game. Yep. So anytime a piece of your chair goes out of bounds or anything like that, you know, you're out of bounds, mm-hmm. you have to make sure you have legal contact with your chair. So yeah, it's, uh, it's, it can be comparable to the running game, um, but it's also a, a different sport unto itself with different strategies. And, and uh, I don't think you could walk in from coaching non-disabled basketball and say like, okay, on day one, I can be a great wheelchair basketball coach. Mm, yep. You can, I think, you, you have um, to think about. The, I mean, the chairs themselves, they're pretty wide, aren't they, in terms of they've got cambered wheels. So the, the chair itself can take up quite a bit of land space, for want of a better way of describing it. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, you also can't move laterally in a wheelchair. And mm. so that's also something that I think, you know, we have to think about as well. You it takes up some space, you don't move laterally. And you don't jump necessarily in the, you know, the, the purest form of the word jump. There is a way to, to get a little bit taller in your chair by tilting. But mm-hmm. so, you know, there's, there's some of those things that as wheelchair basketball coaches, you know, we think about how to create more space on a court that, you know, is crowded with wheelchairs. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, how do you maximize that for your team? And so I think it's just this amazing uh, chess game almost of how can I outmatch Uh, someone else, whether it's on an individual basis or a team basis. Mm -hmm. And so let's talk a little bit about the way classification works in wheelchair basketball, because that it's, it, it's designed to create an even playing field so that it incorporates a wide range of impairments, but it's, it's an even playing field on the, on the court itself. So how does that work? Yeah, exactly. So our classification system goes from 1.0 up to 4.5. Mm-hmm. With your class 4.5s, you have those that have the most functional ability on court. And when I say functional ability, I don't mean skill. I don't mean talent. I mean, just purely looking at their body and their muscle function, they have the most they can bring to the table. So those mm-hmm. are your 
below the knee amputees, may have had some significant lower body injuries that prevent you from playing non-disabled sport. Mm -hmm. These are individuals who you might see get up out of their wheelchair and walk away after a wheelchair basketball game, leave their basketball chair behind, and then they will walk away somewhere else. They have the most functional ability. They're class 4.5s, and the range goes all the way through a 1.0. And a class 1.0 is someone who typically has a higher level spinal cord injury. So I would say you're looking at around like T6 to T8 or 9, if we're thinking about where that lies on our spine. I was a class 2.0 when I played. My injury level is at T10. Right. So we go from 1.0 to 4.5. And at any time on the court, you can only have 14 points. So every Mm -hmm. player is assigned that classification. And as a coach, you have to figure out the combination of classifications that add up to 14 points or as close as you Mm -hmm. want to be to that, not over, that are going to give you the best opportunity to be competitive on court. So, you know, you have to be a little bit of a mathematician around that and say, Mm -hmm. okay, do I want you know, a bunch of class four fives and a bunch of class ones on the court together? Or do I want, you know, kind of an even some class twos and class threes on court? So yeah, using the the classification system evens out that functionality to where, you know, every player on the team and court is valued the same. And I, mm-hmm. you know, as a lower class player, I appreciate that. <laughs> um, <laughs> But yeah, and I think it, it just makes such a an amazing and interesting sport that we can have players with varying levels of disability play at the same time. Yeah, yeah, and that adds to the the I guess the the strategy in terms of as a coach, you when you sub on new players, you always have to make sure that you're not overdoing that that total number of points on the court so you have to think about who do you pair with who or who do you you know how how do you create that substitution without overstacking your your group on the court absolutely I've been so paranoid about that as a coach of like not making that mistake which I mean let's be honest I've made it many times some have been caught and some haven't been I keep a little laminated card with me all the time Mm -hmm. and even you know I'm with my players every single day And even though I know them, I know all their classifications, I still keep a lineup card with every possible lineup that my team can run and all the subs that can go into it. Because when you're in the heat of a game, sometimes, you know, you just need that little bit of reference to remind you like, oh, yes, like (laughs) I cannot run that lineup together. I have to put these folks in together. If one person has to come out, it might not be just that one. It might be two people out, two Two. people in. So Yeah. Yeah. A little more strategic than, you know, just being able to sub in one for one. Yeah. And what about the physiological demands when you, when you're training, what does a typical training week look like? What do you focus on? Obviously there's a skill component to the sport, but do you focus a lot on that high intensity sprint capability or is there an even split between that and the endurance capability? Yeah, it's a great question. I think it really depends on where we are in the season and mm-hmm. where we are as far as, you know, what we need out of our athletes. I would say at the beginning of the season, so for us around, you know, September, October, as we're just getting back on campus, a lot of our focus goes into basic skill development and sort of that high intensity cardiovascular speed development that we are going to in the long run want. So our practices are designed around that. There's more cardio 
a little bit less skill instruction, more of a cardio base to our workouts. Um, mm-hmm. So we might do like two days a week where we have a heavy cardio load and in the preseason, two days a week where we do a heavier skill development load. So it's, you know, relatively even at that point. Mm-hmm. As we move further into the season, we have higher demand, our athletes have higher demands on them from a perspective of game performance. Mm-hmm. As we're getting into, you know, January, February, we're really wanting them to be at their best for game times. And for us in the U.S., games are on the weekend. We might have three or four games on the weekend. So mm. we want to ensure that what we do during the week at training doesn't put them in a position to where they're just going to be gassed on the weekend yeah. from playing games. So we'll pull back a little bit on the cardio. We're not doing high-intensity cardio training. We're doing some maintenance work from that cardio or or – um, even strength perspective at that point, just some maintenance work mm-hmm. and going a little bit more into team skill development yeah. and that which takes us through the end of the season. So, it, it, you know, it really depends on where we are, what we need our athletes or how we need our athletes to perform at that time, whether it's performing in a game, whether it's we're in the part of the season where it's, you know, October, we don't have games coming up anytime soon. Mm-hmm. So we can really put a heavier load on them because they'll have the weekend to recover. So, and then we're on court, regardless, we're on court five days a week. Um, Whether that involves some, you know, strength cardio work or whether it's all skill work. And honestly, like, you know, for me, I don't think that my practices are absent of cardio from a perspective of it might not be, uh, you know, today we're going to do these kind of sprints or these kind of chair skills. It might be like, all right, today we're going to go heavy on like full court scrimmaging. So, Mm-hmm. This is going to be a huge load on you yeah. cardiovascularly, right? It comes through gameplay as well. So mm-hmm. I think, you know, we, we're also creative in the ways that we ensure that we're getting into game shape because I think cardio game shape can be very different than just, uh, yeah. you know, yeah, a chair skill or sprinting. S- stop, start, moving. Oh, lots yeah. Of s- and, and there's a strength, a pretty high strength component in there. You know, if you're wrestling and trying to hold your chair in one position against another player there's there's a big strength component that comes into that as well isn't there absolutely and you know being able to like I said there's a lot of contact and so being able to take that Mm -hmm. contact not get knocked off balance to be able to maintain whatever it is that you are doing whether it's you're guarding someone defensively whether it's you're on offense and someone tries to stop your chair so they get a little bit of contact can you maintain your balance to be, mm-hmm. to be able to make and do whatever that next read is because the game moves and changes so fast. Like mm-hmm. if you don't have that core strength that you need or the grip strength or whatever it is, while you're regaining your balance and trying to, you know, get yourself settled in your chair, a read is gone, right? And the, yep. the possession might even be gone at that point in time. So basketball moves so quickly that you do have to be very strong in your chair and um, which goes a bit to chair design too, but also to what we do in the strength gym. I would also Mm -hmm. say the other component that goes with just having that core foundational strength is how explosive can we be? And like you mentioned Mm -hmm. before, you know, wheelchair basketball, our our chairs take up so much space. And I think what that then requires is you want to be the person on court who can gain space Mm -hmm. the fastest and in the shortest amount of time. Mm -hmm. So if I can take, you know, if I can go two feet or three feet, faster than the person that's trying to guard me, I have a huge advantage both offensively and defensively. So 
a lot of our training has to do is like how quickly and powerfully can you move in small spaces? Yes, mm. sprinting is important, but that is a very small part of the game. It's a yep. super small part. What yep. I think differentiates athletes is that space. Like, can you take it faster than somebody else? You're going to automatically you know, launch yourself into being a player who is going to be good on both sides of the ball. Mm. Yeah. Can I ask you a question around if you look at the the general spectrum of Paralympic sports, there doesn't appear to be a lot of individuals with a disability who go into coaching or at least that appear <laughs> as coaches, certainly at, at the higher levels. Do you think there's more, like do you see more people with impairments who are going into coaching now than there used to be? Is that changing? Do you, do you feel like there's a, a reason why that there's still a discrepancy in that? Ooh, that's a huge question. I think it's a fantastic yeah. question. I would say, yes, we are slowly moving in the direction of having more disabled people as coaches. And I think it's fantastic that we're seeing that. I will also say that for the longest time, absolutely, there has been, and this is, you know, not out of out of disrespect for you know, the non-disabled folks that we have in our sport. But I think, you know, I, I kind of look at this from a, I don't know, a sociological and cultural perspective of mm-hmm. sort of this caretaker mentality that we have sometimes around disability. And this is maybe diverting a smidge away from sport, but I think it's relevant mm-hmm. that we see disabled people as needing to be taken care of mm-hmm. rather than being the ones who are sort of the the maker of of your of your destiny or the the one that's in charge we care for ourselves and that that's not to to dismiss interdependence because that is super important within our disability community but i think for mm-hmm. the longest time there was this sort of idea of well you're disabled you need to be taken care of a non-disabled is the person to do that and i think sometimes we have that mentality of a coach as well is like they're the ones who take care of the team and mm-hmm. so i'm going to come in and take care of the team as this non-disabled person and from my personal perspective and sort of what's important to me as a coach, I want my coaches and I want to be a coach that can relate to my athletes from a disability perspective. Mm -hmm. There's so much more to coaching than coaching X's and O's. Mm -hmm. We coach human beings and we coach people. And so I think the fact that I have a disability allows me, and it's not perfect, but it allows me to relate to my athletes in a way that someone who coaches who's not disabled can. Mm. And so I think we're slowly seeing a movement of, you know, the redefinition of what a leader can look like and the redefinition of what a coach can look like. You it, you can be female, you can be disabled. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're not sort of putting labels on folks that don't need to be there. So, you know, that winds back to sport because, you know, it, it is important that we have individuals coaching who, have had the experience of playing wheelchair basketball. I think that's hugely important. Um, The chair, Mm -hmm. knowing how to move the chair, knowing how to be in the chair, I think that's hugely important to being able to teach the sport on Mm -hmm. just a pure X's and O's level. It helps you to be able to teach the sport. And I think looking outside of that um, from a cultural perspective and a sociological perspective, you know, I can relate pretty well to what my athletes go through on a day-to-day basis. And I understand how our bodies work differently and I think all non-disabled bodies work differently, but mm. particularly yeah. within our disabled community, our bodies are unique. And yeah. 
to be in a position where I can understand that I think is super important. So yes, I think we have this, this slow and steady movement towards more coaches who have played the sport or who are disabled being in these positions of leadership. I'd love to see more at the administrative level as well. I think that's just as important as seeing them. And actually at all levels, I shouldn't just say administrative, but even in support staff as well. I think it's super important that we begin to see more and more, you know, whether we're former athletes or not, disabled people into these positions. Mm, Absolutely. Are there any female wheelchair basketball coaches who coach a men's team? Great question. In the U.S., there are some who, I'm trying to think actually, in the college division, no. In some of our club leagues, yes, but our club leagues most times are co-ed. So, Mm. you know, you can have women who are disabled coaching teams on a co-ed team. I could be missing some and, you know, pardon me if someone's listening and they're like, I'm a female wheelchair basketball (laughs) player that coaches a men's team. So I apologize if I don't fully know, but to my direct knowledge, I only know, and I'm thinking of international level right now, I only know of Mm. one female right now who's coaching a men's national team, though she does not identify as having a disability. Mm. Okay. It's interesting, isn't it? Yeah. Very much so. I mean, I think it, again, like it's, we we coach humans and we coach people. And so I'm going to take one step back on that, actually. Christina Schwab was the assistant coach for our men's national team at the 2021 Tokyo Games. Mm. Um, And she's now the head coach of our women's national team. But for the the Tokyo Games, she was uh, Coach Lichen's assistant coach. So she's one of the first that I've seen that have gone to a Paralympic Games, has been on the bench, and an integral part of a coaching staff. But that's not current. She's now the head coach of our national team, which is awesome. Yeah, but it's great that there's some change afoot and people coming through and, and a change, I guess, in terms of that acceptability of, of females being able to coach males, irrespective of whether they have an impairment or not, and that, that carrying through down, down the line in terms of you know, anyone with an impairment can coach just as effectively and sometimes even more effectively Paralympic sport or even able-bodied sport for that matter than someone with who doesn't have an impairment. Absolutely. And I love seeing that, you know, in our non-disabled sporting world, particularly like here in the US, in basketball, we're seeing a lot of, of female coaches having opportunities to coach, you know, at the NBA level, um, mm-hmm. at the you know developmental league level. And it's actually been a stepping stone for some of them to the WNBA, which I think is just awesome because so often it's seen as the reverse that coaching women's sport is the either fallback plan or stepping stone for male coaches Mm -hmm. to get to whatever the highest male coaching league is. And so cool. Like, you know, I think of Becky Hammond here in the U S like she coached as an assistant coach in the NBA for a while and now is coaching a WNBA team as a head coach. And it's just like, absolutely, Mm. you know, doing such a phenomenal job with her team. So it's, it's time. (laughs) It's Mm -hmm. absolutely time because women can lead and women can lead regardless of who they're leading. And, you know, it's just as important that young men and young boys see that women can lead as it is for young girls to see that women can lead. Yep. 
Absolutely. And we've gone a little bit off topic. So let's just remember <laughs> that this is a parasports nutrition podcast. Uh, that yes. me included. I, I, I allowed that one to go off topic. So can we come back to what do you think are some of the key nutrition challenges that you see your young athletes facing? I mean, they're collegiate athletes often, you know, first time into a college setting. So there's that whole spectrum of first year, second year college um, issues that can arise. So what do you see as some of the key nutrition challenges from a basketball perspective and just, you know, in, in general, but also with the age groups that you work with? Sure. I think one is the time management surrounding nutrition. So mm-hmm. coming to college, it's our student athletes first time typically being on their own. Um, they're coming mm-hmm. straight from high school to being with us here and they're they're on their own having to make their own choices, having to make their own decisions about, you know, what goes into their bodies, when it goes into their bodies. And so they they have busy schedules. I mean, we practice at 6:30 in the morning every yeah. day. They have classes, they have lifting, they have responsibilities outside of sport, they have homework they have to do. So the day has a lot of of requirements and so and a lot of time away from a dorm room or somewhere mm. you know centralized where they can eat and so i think one of the big challenges that i know the student athletes that i work with have is just okay i am gone for this portion of the day when do i eat mm. how do i ensure that i'm fueling my body in a way that i can get through this chunk of the day when i have lifting and then i go straight to class and then I have mm-hmm. to go straight to a meeting for class. And then I have to go back to my dorm room and study. And then I have to make sure I get in bed at a certain time. Mm-hmm. So having them understand how to plan their day and how to plan their food. And I think the planning piece is the important part there is that they've never mm-hmm. had to really plan before. Um, yep. Meals have been set out for them, whether it's by their parents or, you know, they, they just haven't had the kind of demands on their body and time that they have once they come into college. And so... Mm-hmm. Typically helping them understand, okay, this is when you need to eat. This is why you need to eat at this point in time. This is why Mm -hmm. you need to eat in general. (laughs) And that, you know, this is the fuel that you need. So teaching them about snacks, teaching them about recovery foods, teaching them about, I think the other piece outside of time management is that when they live at the dorms, which all of our freshmen do coming in, they live at the dorms. Mm-hmm. you have the world of food available to you mm-hmm. at the dorms yeah. from the most healthy choices you can make to the most unhealthy choices you can make. I think it's, it's you know, having them have an understanding of, of what good choices in the dorm cafeteria yep. looks like. And maybe when there aren't any good choices there, how do you put stuff in your dorm room to ensure that, you know, again, you put into your body what your body needs to be fueled for that day. So, I, you know, I think that time management piece is huge. I think then understanding that this is a completely different demand that your body that we're putting on your body, something that you've never experienced mm-hmm. before. Yeah. And so you're going to have to adjust your habits in order to reflect that. Um, mm-hmm. So whether that's, you know, getting more protein in your body, eating snacks after lifting, bringing a snack for during practice when, you know, we've gone two full hours and you still have an hour to go. Do you have a snack there to refuel you? That's not going to upset your stomach. Before practice in the morning, eating before practice, which I know is a huge topic of discussion for like early morning <laughs> practices. Um, I have athletes all the time when I ask them what they've had before practice, they're like, "Oh, nothing." 
I'm like, oh, okay. All right. So yeah, I think, you know, just understanding nutrition in general is huge and understanding the impact that it has on your performance. For our student athletes coming in, most haven't had a lot of experience with sport nutrition coming into the college environment. And what about even at the at the senior level, having coached the national team, what were some of the key nutrition challenges that you've had there? I think uh, hydration. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, and I think hydration in a from a disability perspective. Yep. And I know like sometimes I I struggle with hydration because I don't want to be in the bathroom every like 30 to 40 minutes. Mm-hmm. So how do we but how do we properly hydrate again in order to one be healthy but then to be able to perform. So we we had just started you know, our stronger relationship with the USOPC from a nutrition perspective, when I started coaching, it was, you know, in its infancy. And so I think some of the first steps that, that we made, you and I made together were, you know, ensuring that everyone was hydrated at its very (laughs) basic, right? Like just making sure we have enough fluids in our body and, you know, on planes, right? Like we travel a lot, but Mm -hmm. airlines aren't exactly the most accessible place for us to go to the restroom as well. So how do we ensure that on these long international trips or even a trip coming into a training camp where some people may choose to dehydrate themselves for understandable reasons, how do we then rehydrate to get everyone back to where they need to be before we train? And so I think hydration was a huge key for us going into my time with the national team, which was the the cycle for the Rio games. And then I think the the fueling piece, just how do I continue to to fuel my body in that healthy way? I think we worked on some very basic things with nutrition because it was sort of a, a newer um, resource that we were bringing in for mm. our athletes. Mm. Yeah, because at the collegiate level, even though it's a collegiate program, do you get much support like other um, sports do? You know, in the US, it's a huge thing where they've got feeding tables for just the athletes and they've yeah. got all sorts of resources available to them. That does that flow through to to you guys as well? It does not. It does not. Um, we we do not. We're not able to access the same nutritional resources as our non-disabled athletes do on campus. So you know, we as coaches here have to do the best we can with one learning from our own perspective, um, doing the research and and doing what we can to learn. We actually, you know, I think we're really fortunate in Illinois that it is a Paralympic training site for track. And so, mm-hmm. you know, whenever there's a, a sport nutritionist or dietitian that comes in to work with our track athletes, you know, y'all have been incredibly gracious to uh, work with some of our wheelchair basketball athletes as well, which has been just amazing. And then I think the other thing that we're really fortunate is we have Susanna Scaroni right here mm-hmm. with us who, you know, for those that don't know Suze, you know, she's a just world-class racer, human, budding and sport dietitian and nutritionist. So well, soon you know, to be sport dietitian. She's just about to graduate. She's so close. So we're <laughs> incredibly fortunate to have her here. And my yeah. my incoming freshman actually met with her a few times this year to work on more individualized plans. One, how to use the mm-hmm. dorm cafeteria but then to, you know, to make them more in, make their plans more individualized for them. So I, I would say we have some resources here that we take advantage of um, that are outside of what the university provides for mm-hmm. our non-disabled athlete population. Um, we sort of go a different route, I think, because 
you know, some of the needs of our student athletes are a little bit different. So I'm hopeful we can convince Suze to stay and just become our sport dietitian here. That would be unbelievable. He <laughs> <laughs> he, I'll be totally up for that. <laughs> so Stephanie, what have you learned as a coach compared to what you learned as being an athlete? Oh my gosh. <laughs> oh, there is a lot more that goes into coaching than I think our athletes realize. And I'm not saying that to be disparaging to our athletes at all. But I think I had a, you know, I had an idea in my mind of, of what coaching was like before I got into it. It's like, oh, like, cool, we'll come in, we'll teach, we'll get to build culture, I'll teach them how to play basketball, and cool, that's it. There's so many other things that go on. Um, mm. And I think kind of what I mentioned before with that understanding that we coach humans. That's been, mm. I think, the biggest thing that I think is what I maybe thought coaching would be like to what it actually is like, is I spend far more of my time building culture, helping to build great teammate connections, mm-hmm. and sort of like just managing people over coaching basketball. And I do plenty of that, but mm-hmm. it's a lot of of people management, which um, is something I've had to work really hard on, actually, is that doesn't come naturally to me in relationship building and Relationship management doesn't come, you know, wasn't the thing that I was best at as a young coach. Mm -hmm. And so I've worked really hard to understand how to best build relationships with so many different types of of personalities and athletes that come into our program. So I think that's the biggest difference that, Mm. you know, I see between my time as an athlete and my time as a coach is my time as an athlete, you know, I could worry about training my butt off and being the best I could be and then bringing that and giving it to the team. And it just, that felt natural to me, but making that transition to coaching and the relationship building piece was a, a pretty big piece for me. Mm. Mm. Interesting. So Stephanie, do you have any recommendations for potential wheelchair basketball coaches, whether, you know, wherever they come from, where, how did they get into coaching wheelchair basketball? Yeah. So I think you think about how I want to phrase that. Um, <laughs> that's a tough question, I think, for me, because, you know, I was pretty fortunate. I had someone who brought me along with them and was like, you know, I see you're really great at this. So we're going to get you prepared to be in the right place. So I think if you're an athlete who is, you know, competing right now, who has aspirations of coaching, one, let's verbalize that to your coaches or verbalize that to the Mm -hmm. folks around you because then they can begin to to put you in a position to be successful, whether it's, you know, letting you into a little bit of what goes on behind the scenes as a coach or, you know, like my coach did taking me to camps around the world. Um, mm. So I would just say like, you know, one, if you're thinking about it, awesome. Tell your coach, tell somebody that you're close to that can help you prepare for the job. I think coaching is a hard job to be sort of thrown into because there are yep. so many aspects of it. So I think having as much preparation as you can getting into it is good. So I think if you're interested, tell someone yep. and someone that you know can can help you maybe get to where you want to be. I think for others that are interested in coaching, maybe you're not an athlete or maybe you're interested in wheelchair basketball, I would seek out local wheelchair basketball organizations wherever you are, whether you're in the US, anywhere around the world. Oftentimes we have the internet now, a quick Google search will mm. you know, show you local wheelchair basketball clubs and pop in and say like, Hey, I'm interested in this. What do I have to do to learn how to coach? So there's also opportunities for like coaching clinics. We have coaching clinics here at the university of Illinois, where you can come in and 
spend four days with us as a coaching staff while we instruct our youth camps here on campus. And so you get to see some on-court instruction and participate in on-court instruction. And then you get to come hang out with with me and, and our men's mm-hmm. coach in between times and learn the ins and outs of coaching. So I think that there, there are growing pathways if you want to mm-hmm. be a wheelchair basketball coach. And I think the other piece of it is on the other side. And I think that's from our current coaches is don't be afraid to ask the question, have you ever thought about coaching? That mm-hmm. that question changed my life. And so yeah. I would say for the coaches out there, look for that potential in your athletes because they are our next generation of coaches and you know we can start creating and building great coaches now. Yeah, yeah, great point. What about any recommendations that you have for athletes who may be thinking about wheelchair basketball as a sport? How would they get into it? Um, kind of similarly, you know, if I think we have wheelchair basketball teams with the NWBA all across the country here in the U.S. And mm-hmm. so, you know, a, if you're interested, a quick Google search will reveal teams in your area. Oftentimes, you know, if you're in bigger metropolitan areas, they'll have like rehabilitation centers. You know, I'm close to Chicago. And so they have the Shirley Ryan Ability Lab there, which, you know, if you're there, they can connect you to their wheelchair basketball network there. But if you're like me, I grew up in a really small town, isolated, was the only kid with a disability. I found basketball through a random serendipitous meeting with another parent. So I would say if you're interested, if you want to get involved in the sport, search for what's around you, seek out rehabilitation centers. They often can point you in the right direction as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Awesome. Great. Well, thanks, Stephanie, for all of your experience and yeah, your journey has been I can't believe it's 14 years that you've been at the university. Me neither. Of you seem like you're still in your 20s. Um. Oh, I wish I felt like that. <laughs> I wish my body was still in that shape. <laughs> oh, don't we all? Um, <laughs> uh, let's just finish off with what's your favorite food? Oh, my gosh. So I grew up in, in the U.S. I grew up in the South, which Mm-hmm. You know, for Fried those that chicken. know, that has that a very smart yes, <laughs> yes, <laughs> gravies, fried foods, like those things are like kind of in my soul, <laughs> unfortunately. Mm-hmm. So it, it, gosh, it's hard for me to like pin down a favorite food, but like something with gravy on it, <laughs> <laughs> anything, or like which did not. Oh man, which did not bode well for my athletic career. Like I've, you know, my diet had to do a 180 as an athlete or like, you know, my Nana makes delicious fried chicken and like fried okra and like just any kind of like delicious Southern food Mm -hmm. that's not good for you um, is probably what I would choose if I like had to choose my favorite meal. The other one is probably like, you know, I appreciate a good like steak and potato. I think that's the other, if you had to ask me like, you know, just favorite meal, a steak yep. and potato as well. Oh, uh, now I've got to, I remember there was something at, at the end of your season, you do a cook-off with your, with your team. How did yes, that go so, this year? Oh, it was amazing. So this year actually was the first year we had it. Mm-hmm. Um, and we did it in January because that's kind of a, it's a tough part of the year for us to get through. It's, you know, cold, snowy, all that stuff here. So I'd mm-hmm. inject a little fun. So yeah, we did the Great Illini Cook-Off. It was its inaugural <laughs> year, and it was awesome. I did not know what to expect going in. We divided our team up into four groups, four teams, 
And they all had to come up with an entree that they went out, they grocery shopped for. Mm -hmm. uh, they found the recipes, whether it's something they had on their own or they looked something up. And it was amazing. We have a really cool instructional kitchen in our recreation facility. And so we were able to use that. And they came mm -hmm. up with some of like the most creative dishes, delicious dishes. Like we had some really good cooks on our team. Awesome. Um, yeah. And so it, I think it allowed them to learn a little bit about grocery shopping if they had never done it before. Mm -hmm. And there's certainly, I want to build up to it next year to like add in some of that, the teaching components about, you know, grocery shopping or, you know, yep. meal planning or whatever that might be. But it was awesome. It was a great team building opportunity as well. There's some people who were not great cooks, some people who are. And it just, it was a really great way to have some fun together, make some delicious food and have some fun. Our uh, inaugural winners, we have a, a cutting board that we gave as like the <laughs> trophy or whatever. So our, we have our, our cutting board that we'll pass down from year to year. And um, yeah, it was just, it was so much fun. I, I can't wait for next year because, and they're already talking about it. Like mm. they're already talking about recipes and ideas. And so I think it just, it creates this fun, healthy atmosphere around food and around what we put yep. in our bodies. And so, yeah. and like I said, just on top of it all, just a blast. <laughs> That's so cool. I wish I had been there. I know. We would have loved to have you as a guest judge. <laughs> Maybe one year I'll have to sneak over and, and slip in and, as a guest judge. <laughs> I think that would be awesome. Well, Stephanie, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. And, yeah, we certainly look forward to seeing loads more come out of your program and just more female wheelchair basketball coaches who who take that opportunity and and really grab it by the ears and run with it like you have absolutely thank you for having me today this has been a lot of fun stephanie does a great job of highlighting the important role a coach plays in not only teaching about sport but also the life skills of an athlete outside of sport i hope you enjoyed this podcast if you did so please share it with your social media and we're also happy to hear your feedback. Please join us next time when we talk to Stephen Lovelace, who was one of the original paratriathlon competitors. 